Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance. My name's DevRaga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we have some more questions from our listeners. Now, when I do these Q&A episodes, I want to make it very clear that I'm not a personal financial advisor. I don't have any credentials. So I can't provide personal financial advice. But what I can talk about is I can pick apart the question and talk about concepts and principles and then try and promote those concepts and principles that the questioner can possibly use in their life and then answer their own question. Now, if it's a non-financial question or question about ethics or in terms of other behavioral finance, and that's a different thing, but I cannot provide specific financial advice. Let's get started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Now, the first question is coming from a dentist who asks, how do you find a balance between ethical practice, making enough money and pursuing your own passions in and out of the profession? Thanks for the question. And I must admit, I find questions about ethics really, really challenging. This is largely because what is ethical to one person may not be ethical to another person when it comes to clinical practice. For example, is working in the private sector for dentistry ethical or not? Why can't dentists work only in the public sector and do community health centres? What about private dentists that charge higher gap amounts for their expertise? Is that ethical? What about dentists that exclusively only service higher socioeconomic suburbs? Is that a bad thing? Why can't dentists exclusively work with Indigenous communities or migrants? Why can't dentists exclusively work in industrial or lower socioeconomic areas or service those people from disadvantaged backgrounds or single mothers or single fathers or elderly on the pension or aged care subsidies? The list goes on and on and on. This is also why I don't like the term ethical investing. It takes a moral high ground over other people. An ethical dental practitioner, in my view, provides a high level of service and may charge a fair price for their expertise and does things in the best interest of their patient. But when it comes to dentistry, there are five core principles which I think are relevant. And some of this is also relevant to medical, nursing, allied health fields as well. Number one is patient autonomy. This is one of the most fundamental obligations of a dental practitioner. The provider needs to include the patient in the treatment decision making. The provider needs to take into account the needs of the patient, the desires, the abilities and protecting their privacy. The provider needs to enable the patient to make their own decisions, which means informing them of the dental disease, treatment options, including relevant costs involved. And part of this may involve making decisions about investigations, such as dental radiographs, etc., etc., or getting subspecialty opinions within the field of dentistry. To enable for the provider to do all of the above, the provider must comply with all the licensing and continuing professional development requirements, which are required by the Australian Dental Association. 
To those listening from overseas, Australia does have a public health system, but it largely excludes dental coverage universally. There are community dental practitioners and centres which are at low cost to the public, but it's not entirely taxpayer-funded. Given the huge burden of physical disease coming from oral hygiene issues, it's quite remarkable we haven't worked this out yet. Hopefully in the future, we will have viable, public, true, no-cost dental options. Number two is non-maleficence. This means do not harm. This is also true for doctors and nurses and allied health practitioners. Before we intervene, we need to take into account the very real possibility that our intervention can potentially cause more harm than not. So any decision needs to take this into consideration. The part of do no harm is dentist expertise, knowledge and skills base, patient abandonment, ensuring enough notice given if the provider is changing practices or stops practicing, the loss of personal relationships, the scope of practice. If it exceeds the dentist's capabilities, then it's ethically obligatory to refer to someone with that higher expertise. Number three is beneficence. The fundamental principle here is the dentist does things for the benefit of their patients. Money doesn't come into the factor. A dentist is allowed to charge for their services, but they can't do unnecessary or excessive treatments solely for the purposes of charging more money to the patient. The provider is responsible to practice in a professional manner, maintain up-to-date standards, knowledges and skills bases, meeting all legislative compliance requirements and licensing requirements. The provider should consider all options of treatment and what would happen if no treatment is offered. Number four is justice. This means the provider practices in a way which is non-discriminatory to race, sex, creed or disability. And having said this, if the provider feels they don't have the expertise or equipment to provide care to some people, they can reasonably decline care, but must provide an alternative service for that patient. This is because any treatment could potentially do more harm than good in that practice. The dentist also has an obligation to report other dentists to providers who may be providing substandard care or have done so in the past. And number five, truthfulness. The provider must have integrity, transparency, honesty in their dealings with their patients, not lying. It happens is a good trait in healthcare. So Anon, hopefully that covers the ethical practice component of your question. The next part of your question relates to making enough money and following passions within or outside of the profession. This is a very, very broad question, but let me answer the making enough money bit first. A good way to identify how much money you need to make is to look at your budget and establish the bare minimum to cover that budget. This would include your 20% pay yourself money, 30% household expenses money, 30% mortgage or rental expenses money, and 20% emergency funds luxuries money. Then you need to add a buffer to this. What kind of buffer you add is entirely up to you. I would generally recommend a 25% buffer to this, so it gives you some wiggle room. This may not always be possible. Now you've come to the final figure of how much money to make. Once you come to this figure, you then work out your fee structure in your dental practice to achieve this in the least amount of hours or most amount of hours. You may see, as a dentist, I need to make around $400,000 per year, including the 25% buffer, then work out your fee structure so you get to that sum of the shortest number of working hours possible. I mean, why would you work longer hours and make the same amount of money? You wanna be able to make the same amount of money with the least amount of hours that you work. That's efficiency, that's effectiveness, and that's less opportunity cost. Now, part of that might be negotiating a better percentage with your practice owner. 
Part of that might be specialising within your field so you can charge a bit more and develop a niche subspecialty. Then it's a matter of honing in on those skills to try and tighten it up. I hope this answers your question. There are a lot of other variables here and fingers crossed you can use some of these principles in your clinical practice. Question two is from Maddie who asks, what is redundancy insurance? Thanks for the question, Maddie. And you're the first person ever to ask me this question in real life and via the Q&A sessions. It's such an interesting topic. So let's break down the concepts. What is redundancy insurance? It is designed to provide short-term insurance coverage in the event you're made redundant or lose your job. It's also available for business owners if they become insolvent. But it does not cover you if you lose your job due to termination or poor performance. It's only if your job becomes redundant involuntarily. Remember, voluntary redundancies do not cover. It usually covers up to a certain portion of your pre-redundancy income in order for you to pay off any bills and cover any expenses during a period of no employee income. And it usually only covers you for a short duration period. Redundancy insurance is not the same as income protection insurance, although it can be added as a bonus or additional feature, which can be added to IP policies. Here are some core features of redundancy insurance that you need to know about. Number one is benefit amount. Usually this can be up to 75 to 85% of your pre-redundancy income. It's based on gross income, not after-tax income. And usually there are limits, which can be perhaps up to $4,000 per month. So if you're earning like $50,000 per month, you won't get a higher amount. Number two is benefit period. Usually benefit periods are up to three months after you're able to find other employment. Policies expire on your 65th birthday. And if you get a job earlier than three months, then your benefit period will expire too. Number three is no claim period. Usually there is a waiting period prior to being able to claim. You can't just get redundancy insurance and then claim it immediately. The no claim period can be sometimes up to six to 12 months. Number four is in addition to the no claim period, there's also a waiting period. And usually that's around 28 days once you're redundant. Now, is there any restrictions on eligibility criteria? It depends on the insurers, but generally speaking, you need to be working at least 30 hours per week. Usually it also means you need to have employment or self-employed in that position for at least six months. And do you need redundancy insurance? Here are some questions to consider. How likely are you in a position to become redundant? There are restrictions in claimability and also the maximum you pay out can be as low as $4,000. Is that enough? Is $4,000 payout enough for you? Do you have enough in savings which can get you through remembering you will need to wait 28 days before claiming anyway in addition to the six-month no-claim period? What about other liquid assets like shares or even super which could help you get through those tough times? Do you really need redundancy insurance? And many people during COVID dipped into their super to get through the troubled times, granted it is pinching from your future self. Sometimes with involuntary redundancies, the company or the organisation will pay you out anyway, which could be several months worth of pay. So you may not need redundancy insurance because the insurance company is not going to pay you when you're sitting on a pile of cash. Overall, it's there for the absolute worst case scenario. It is not designed for everyone and I don't think many people will need it. Getting it standalone in Australia is not easy. Mostly, it's an add-on to the income protection policies. Now, Maddie, I hope this clarifies and it's a really, really good question. Now, we'll take a quick break and when we come back, we'll go through some more listener questions. Be right back. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, welcome back. Question number three comes from Anon, who asks, as a GP, we're paid as contractors, then have to pay tax, super, etc. Any tips for what to do with all the money sitting in my account waiting to be paid to the ATO or super fun? Now, this is quite a common question that a lot of sole traders ask me. And here's a simple answer. Do not invest any money which is owed to the ATO. It's just too risky. When I was a GP contractor ages ago, and I only did a very, very limited amount of time, I used to apply a 50% self-imposed tax. I knew my tax rate is going to be lower than that. I would maximise my super contributions up to 27500 per year or whatever it was back in the day and catch up on any concessional contributions I had left over from the previous years, which is usually zero, as I was pretty decent at maximising my concessional contributions even back in the day. Then I would take the ATO money and offset it against my mortgage back in the day. If you don't have a mortgage, then you can put it in a high-interest savings account. And nowadays, the returns on those are pretty good compared to just five years ago. There are high-interest savings account or term deposits, which are available 3 4 5% even. That's about it. I wouldn't do anything different. The last thing you want to do is invest your tax money and then realize you've lost it or some of it. But the ADO does not give a rat's ass about your gambling or speculative investment. They want their money back. It is their rightful money taxation is not your money. You could organise a payment plan, and I've discussed this in previous episodes, but generally speaking, I want the ATO off my back. I don't want much to do with them. So I don't even try and maximise with the tax money. And recently, I was just speaking to a colleague who is in a little bit of trouble because they haven't planned for taxation. They haven't planned for Div 293 taxes. They haven't planned for excess super contributions taxes. So you need to anticipate these things. You need to plan for these things because otherwise you're going to have to pay the money. You don't want to be in a situation where you get rid of your assets in order to pay the taxes. You don't want to be in a situation where you negative equity, where you take the tax money and invest it and lose it in a market downturn as some people did in 2022 and 2023. 
And then the ATO still wants their money. They're not going to say, sorry, Dev, it's okay that you've lost money as a result of your stupid decisions. You can just pay us back when you get the money back. Uh-uh. Now, I'm sorry if this is too simplistic, Anon, but that's just preferred in my view. Now, I've been in this sort of business, I suppose, for a very long time. And what I've noticed is the simplest way to get to a destination is often the best way. And have you ever been in a situation where you're driving and your GPS tells you to go a specific way and you think you know better, but your GPS knows the traffic. It knows the roads. Sometimes some of the GPSs know the roadworks, the traffic jams, the alternative parts. But you know better because you've done that route a million times before. Now, I'm not a saint. I've been in the situation where my car's taken me on a roundabout way or what I perceive to be a roundabout way to get home. And I just ignored it. And it turns out that the GPS was right because the shortest way to get to destination B from destination A is always the shortest way. And sometimes human behaviour, we think we know better, but the reality is we don't. So let's not complicate things. Let's keep it very, very simple. And I know it's not sexy and I know it's not exciting to invest your ATO money, but sometimes being boring pays off. Now, question four comes from Phillips, who asks about income protection within super versus outside of super. Now, I won't go into this concept of income protection as I've discussed this countless times before, but this is a very valid question indeed. But let's break it down from a within super versus outside of super, and let's take a look at the pros and cons. Superannuation owned income protection insurance. What are the good things about it? The biggest advantage is premiums are auto paid from within the existing superannuation investment account, and this means you don't need to remember to pay it, and also it helps with your cash flow. IP premiums are not cheap and sometimes can cost in the thousands of dollars per year, so having that extra bit of cash is really, really good. Now, money in super is tax advantaged, so using those funds to pay premiums means you are utilising a tax advantaged account in order to pay the premiums. You don't have to worry about withholding the relevant pay-as-you-go amount. The trustee of the super account will do that for you if you end up making a claim. What are the cons? There are two conditions of release of income protection during this claim phase. You must meet the insurance policy definition of incapacity and you must meet the condition of release, temporary incapacity of super under superannuation law. This is an interesting element I actually didn't know. I suspect if you're sick, you will need to seize employment anyway, so it's not a huge factor, but is a minute factor. The claims process is a bit more long-winded. The benefit is paid to the trustee and not directly to the beneficiary. It's up to the beneficiary to then claim it from the trustee, which is that two-step process that I was talking about. Insurance outside of super is paid generally direct to the beneficiary. The premiums coming off the super account means there's an element of insurance erosion. Premiums can slowly erode away of the superannuation investment accounts, which means you have less on retirement. It's a bit like more fees on your investment, which can compound over a long period of time. Even if you contribute more to combat the so-called premium insurance option, it counts towards the super concessional cap. For example, if your insurance premium is $4,000 per year and you contribute that amount to top up the super, now your concessional contribution comes down by that $4,000. It sounds obvious, but it's an important element to be aware of. And lastly, if you change super funds, guess what? Insurance is not portable. This is a major factor to consider when changing super or rolling over funds to another super fund. What about income protection outside of super? 
What are the pros? Generally speaking, because you're using after-tax income to pay for premiums, it means premiums are tax deductible. And sometimes, even if you get sick and not employed at the time of sickness, some policyholders are still paid out. This is because some policies accept that you may have worked just in the last 12 months or even two years, and this is the insured dependent. There's a lot more flexibility and customizable options for policies and insurance portability. If you change super, jobs, whatever, the same insurance follows you so you know exactly what you're paying for and what you're getting for that payment. What are the cons? Pay-as-you-go tax is not withheld from benefit payments, which means it's up to the client to account and budget for this. It can be very expensive and affect your cash flow situation. Income protection, you know, really can set you back in terms of your budget. If your income protection plan is income and capital benefits payment, only the portion attributable to the income portion of the benefit is tax deductible. Now, can you claim multiple IP policies? Technically, it is possible, but practically it may not make much sense. There is a clause in most policies to suggest you can't claim more than 75% of your total income salary. So it doesn't really matter if you have multiple policies, you still can only claim a total of 75% of your total income policy. But there may be situations where two IP policies may make sense. Sometimes, for example, some policies pay a reduced benefit for the first two years of disability, say 60%, then another policy can kick in after a waiting time of two years, which then pays a 75% of monthly salary until the insured turns age 65. So there are some circumstances where having multiple IP policies may be beneficial, but for the vast majority, I just don't think it's worth it. Does it matter if income protection policy is within super or outside of super? That's really what Anon is asking. The bottom line is the 75% rule still applies, so it doesn't really matter, but you may wish to discuss this specific question with a qualified insurance broker or advisor. This is one area that you really want to seek advice. You don't want to do this by yourself. Now, if you have multiple insurance policies, will they actually find out? And the answer is yes. It's all shared data. And remember, with any insurance claims, you need to be honest, transparent. Otherwise, they could cut you off any payments. Now, what about life insurance policies? Can you have multiple policies? I know the Anon didn't ask me about that. And the short answer is yes. As long as you comply with each insurance policy terms and conditions, you can claim on multiple policies. So it might be a strategy to have multiple $1 million policies, for example, rather than having one $5 million policy. But I'm not so sure how they would police this as the latter would need medical checks, while most people don't need medicals for up to 500,000 to a million bucks. It just seems to be too good to be true. So if you're an insurance advisor on this uh, and you know how to loophole or there's some sort of, you know, back end that exists or doesn't exist, feel free to reach out and get in touch with me. And that's about it for this episode. Some very interesting and niche questions and some recurrent ones for old time's sake. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using or leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. I think by the time this gets aired, it will be well and truly into the 2024 year. And you're hoping you had a great, uh, you know, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and got your plan set out for the rest of the year, done your professional development plan for all you GPs out there that you need to do on a yearly basis now, thanks to the new RACGP CPD requirement. So I uh, hope you're excited and enjoying that. Hint, hint, I'm not. Now, remember, the more reviews and more ratings that you leave, the better this podcast becomes because it gives me a lot of energy, a bit of support and a bit of, you know, uplift mentally to sort of keep producing these episodes because I do a lot of thought and planning for each of these episodes. So I think it's really important. But on that note, I had a negative review recently. 
who says, love you usually, but perhaps one of your less interesting ones, but I'll be upping the stars next time. And this was in 2023. I'm a bit disappointed that I got a one-star review from a person that possibly listens to my podcast on a regular basis because they did say that they love me usually, but this particular episode they didn't particularly like. And I don't know, I'm a bit dejected by that because instead of rating a podcast channel based on one episode that the vast majority of people likely enjoyed, but there's one person didn't and they have acknowledged that they like the episodes and I had a flawless five-star rating up until now. Now I think it's 4.99 or something like that. So, but you know what? I appreciate the feedback and I'm sorry that they didn't like that one episode. I think that's a little bit harsh. I don't know. Uh, So if you're listening, that person that left the one-star review, hopefully since then, the episode quality has significantly improved. And if you're one of those people that think that was an unfair review, then go ahead go to my uh, reviews page and give it a five-star rating and give me a great comment and I'll read it out live on one of the episodes. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts, so please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga and this is Dev Raga Personal Finance and until next time, remember to make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 